Well, good morning, Eastridge, wherever and whenever you are listening to this. Today we come to a story in Elijah's story in the Old Testament, which I got to say, it's my favorite sort of David-Goliath story, but it's not David and Goliath. And it's a, a story that seems so ancient and so uh, locked into its time that at first we look at it and we go, well, what's that got to say to us? But if you just scratch below the surface, it has an incredible amount to say to us, you, me, our world, our country, in this cultural moment. And uh, I'm talking about First uh, Kings chapter 18. You can turn there because we're going to spend some time in there today, uh, a significant amount of time, because it's a big chapter and there's a lot to say there. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that sort of... Uh, pushes the buttons for me, is that, uh, you know, I wonder if God isn't being patient with us so that he can get the job done of renewing us and healing us and bringing us back where we need to be. After all we've been through in the last uh, year, I've kind of asked myself that, like, you know, I, I would be sure great if God, like, showed up with his presence right now, you know, like he healed us and, and restored us and a renewal kind of swept the land and all of those kinds of things that most of us who follow God long for. It'd be really cool if that would happen right now. But I wonder if God isn't biding his time because you know what, before he makes that move, it's a really good idea that he be patient so that as many people can follow him as possible. Whether that's, the, whether that's what's going on in God's uh, thinking right now, I don't claim to know. But I, I do know that there seems to be some parallels to, to our time. Like the, the Baal uh, worship thing, Baal has been shown over the last three and a half years of this famine that's been going on. God, Baal has been shown, to, you know, the, the god of, uh, you know, farm production, the god of uh, fertility has been shown to have a massive impotence problem. He just couldn't bring back the rain. He just couldn't. And it's like, well, what is this God anyway? What kind of person should we, you know? And, and it starts to make you think, maybe God is trying to get us to ask the question. Maybe God is trying to get them uh, to ask the question, you know, are the things that you're really putting your hope in really going to work? And that seems to be the point of the story, that God's holy presence will show up and we will see God's holy presence, but that doesn't mean that it's not already here, that he's not already here. It's just we can't see him, but he'll let us see it when he knows that once he does that renewal, once he does that revival, that somehow we just don't snap back like the people in the book of Kings. Every time they had a new king, they began to do as their forefathers did, which was against the Lord. They began to do as against the Lord as their forefathers did over and over and over again. So I, if you haven't yet, turn in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, because what we're going to do today is we're just going to do this sort of as a primer, okay? In other words, I'm going to ask you to go back home and read it because there's no way we're going to cover it all. I'm trying to be disciplined here and not go past my 75 minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but but I, go back and look at it and say, is that what, what that guy said? Is that really in here? Because it's a, a powerful story for our moment. What, what's happening is the, the first thing you notice uh, in this is that, you know, you got to ask the question, who says the Bible's boring? Who says it doesn't have any really cool stories? Because this is a wild, wild west story in the Old Testament. I mean, it, it, it's a powerful story. God calls uh, Elijah back from uh, the seacoast in a town called Zarephath. 
And, and, and when he, he brings them back, he sends them straight to Ahab the king. I've got a word for the king. Because you see, it is a Wild West story. Elijah's an outlaw, man. He, they got his picture up in the post office. He's a, he's a fugitive. Because the king just hates him. He thinks he's the problem. Doesn't realize, the king doesn't, that he's the problem. And a new character is introduced right off the bat in uh, uh, the first part of uh, chapter 18. Let me just talk the first nine verses or so through with you. Because there's this character named Obadiah. And Obadiah shows up, and what we realize is Obadiah is a believer right under the nose of Ahab and Jezebel, right under the nose of the administration, because he's their executive director. And he's a lot like our executive director. He's a God follower. He trusts the Lord, but they don't fully realize it or know it quite yet. So it's sort of this thing like, yeah, God's got some people out there. And next, next week in the 19th chapter, we're going to find out that God has 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal, the remnant. He's, he's one of those. And he kind of proves it that, you know, he's not outspoken. He's not like Elijah. He doesn't dress funny. He doesn't have a long beard, doesn't eat, you know, food the birds have brought to him and then coughed up and given it to him. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. But he's, he's a guy who's just in the court, just respectful to the king, so forth and so on. But in the meantime... When Jezebel goes nuts and wants to kill off all the prophets of Yahweh, he hides a hundred of them in a couple of caves. He divides them into fifties, and then he brings them food and water. An incredible undertaking, and one that could get him killed, quite frankly. And we'll, we'll see him talk about that in a minute. But I want you to pause a minute and talk about this Jezebel going after and trying to kill the prophets of Yahweh because you might say, man, how gruesome and violent. And, and he's right. It's right. You see, we live in the age of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. Jesus has made us clear that all violence is wrong. But back in that day, the Old Testament law wasn't calling for violence, but the Old Testament law was moderating the violence that was already there because of the fall, because of sin having entered the world. And so the reason I say that is we're going to see it again later in the, the, the story here about these, you know, executing prophets kind of thing. And the, the thing is about this one is, is that you need to understand Jezebel wasn't do this for religious reasons. She wasn't so in love with Baal. She was doing it for political reasons. Because that's what you did in those days. When a new king came to the throne or you married the king, she just married the king, you came in and you tore everything up from the last administration. You came up and you killed off all the people that might someday rebel against you and, you know, the old crown, so to speak. You came in and changed all the religion and you took care of the people that were promoting the old religion and that's simply what she's doing. It's not, not uh, religious or devotion, it's more political, it's more about the power. And you, and you see the contrast too between, you know, uh, uh, Obadiah saving and Jezebel uh, executing. You see the, the difference between Ahab wanting, in verse 3, wanting to go find some pasture for uh, the animals, for the mules and the cattle. Why? Because if those die in this famine, man, the economy goes south. So you see government's concern for the economy, because that's partly their job, really. But you see Obadiah, the faithful follower of God, his concern for the prophets and saving them. You see, what's interesting is you think elections have consequences today. <laughs> Oof, boy, howdy. You see, because basically, 
what, Eli, what, what Ahab is saying to Obadiah about taking care of these mules and animals and to heck with the people, is he was saying, you know, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> I got to keep that going. That's the way I can keep my power. It's kind of the, the contrast to what happened this week. If you saw what happened on Wall Street, we have this bunch of everyday uh, normal investors from their, uh, you know, uh, sitting in their basements in their boxer shorts trading and then almost taking down and take, really taking down some of the hedge funds. Uh, it's a complicated thing. I'm not saying what they did was all right and so forth and so on, but it sure rattled the cage of the elite. Kind of funny, really. And that's kind of what you see happening here by Obadiah doing this quiet behind-the-scenes thing. It sure rattles the elite. Who did that? Who still kept those hundred prophets alive? You see, I guess in our world, as we have a growing dependence on politics and rather than the Lord, our world's not so different than this one in that context because there was a growing concern for that. At least that's what Jezebel and Ahab were trying to do. And what Obadiah winds up being is this quiet monument to Jezebel and Ahab's failure right under their nose. And what's cool about that for you and I, just one more thing, is that you contrast Obadiah with, with uh, Elijah. And Elijah's this flamboyant, big, amazing prophet, right? Outspoken when he's, when he's present, you know, when he's not hiding. But Obadiah, just quiet, quiet behind the scenes. And God uses both of them powerfully to transform the culture and the nation and the world in which they were living. So you may not feel like you've got anything to say. You know, your pride may be kind of taking a hit these days. But as you look at these two, it, it explodes with hope, really. God doesn't use just one flavor of follower of his to make a difference in this world or in our, in our time either. In our moment, under the crises that we're living under, if you will. I, I read one person this week who described the, the kind of contrast uh, about how God will use and what God asks us to do if he's going to do what we wish and hope and pray that he will do. The contrast is, is that, uh, you know, God hasn't called us to good works or, or to uh, great works. He's called us to good works. He hasn't called us to, to flamboyant ministry. He's called us to faithful ministry. One day by day, moment by moment, and then he takes it from there. He hasn't called us uh, to be dashing and celebrity types. He's called us to be devoted types and devoted servants to him. And that's what makes all the difference in the world. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus says to his disciples. Remember when he's talking about sheep? And, uh, you know... Peter or somebody speaks up and says, you know, hey, 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 well, how, you know, how many of these do you have? Or, you know, who, who, how, how are we going to do anything, you know, in this world? And, and Jesus basically says to him, hey, I got other sheep you don't know about just from this sheep pen. I got them all over. You just can't see them yet. It's that kind of world that we're looking at today. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to hear what Obadiah says beginning in verse 10. He's not some kind of fearful quizzing, quizzling. He is afraid. I mean, rightly so. But he's, he's finally found Elijah. As, as Ahab and Obadiah go out in these different directions trying to find pasture land, and oh, by the way, if you can find Elijah, that would be great too. He finds Elijah. Elijah shows up, and here it is. Verse 10. This is Obadiah speaking. As surely as the Lord your God lives... 
There is no nation or kingdom to which my master, Ahab, not, has not sent word in, to search for you. And whenever they say he is not here, he makes the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. Yet now you are saying, go to your master, behold, Elijah is here. And it will come to pass, it will come about that when I leave you, leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you to where I do not know. And so when I come to inform Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Though I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. He's pretty wise here. He's seen the pattern. Has, has it not been reported to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? Yet now you are saying, Go to your master. Behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Then Elijah said to him, As surely as the Lord of armies lives before whom I stand, I, certainly, I will certainly present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and informed him, and then Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you cause of disaster to Israel? And he said, I have not brought disaster in Israel, but you and your, and your father's house have, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, send orders and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, which is a female uh, deity that they would uh, supposedly, that they made out of wooden statues in all their houses and the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. You see a real contrast here. First of all, there's the kings. And again, as we, we've said, it, does, it doesn't hurt to say this too many times. The kings, if you look at First and Second Kings, it's this perennial downward spiral, the spir one after another after another. This was a good king. This is not a good king. This is a good king. This is not a good But it continually spirals down and down and down. It's the definition of insanity, trying the next God, the new God, any God but the real God, it's, it's, it's trying the same thing over and over again and getting the same result, which is disaster. And it just keeps going down and down and down. Then you have the prophets in contrast that, um, you know, they're, they're, they have a contrast of worldviews, if you will. And, and, and this is where Elijah comes about. This is where Elijah uh, shows up. And, and, and then the question that God is using his prophets, the worldview is that the important, most important question to ask and the question that keeps coming up in this passage, and really in many ways it's the theme of Elijah's entire life, is who is the real God? Who's a God who's real? What, what is reality? Not just something we make up. That's the question that is begged to be answered. And it, 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 you, you see it in a subtle way, showing up as uh, Ahab has been searching and searching for Elijah. Uh, this, as in your text, uh, it surely says, you troubler of Israel, unless you've got uh, the New American Standard Bible that I'm using here, 2020, it says, you troubler of Israel. It can mean the same thing, but here, here it says, the, you the cause of disaster to Israel. And the reason I like that is, is because it's, it's, both are accurate, but, but it, it kind of clarifies the meaning of troubler. It basically means, you're the cause of my problems. 
And, and Abraham, I mean, Elijah basically says, no, I'm not the cause of your problems. But that's your problem because you think you can be in charge of the cause. You think you can cause, you, you, don't, you don't think, you will not admit that there is a true causer of all these things. You will not admit who the real, true shot caller is. And that is the definition of idolatry. And that's, that's, that's why you cause of it. No, you got it all wrong. You've put me in a pedestal on your heart, Ahab, on the dark side of your heart, granted, but I don't belong there. Because I'm not the shot caller. I'm not the one who's in control of all this. And Ahab still, you know, acknowledges, still won't acknowledge who's really in control. And as you look at this, as you see this, you can, you can, there's a silver lining. We're going to see this again and again. There's this light in the midst of the darkness of this culture and this world. Just like there's a light running through the darkness of this, our culture and our world and in our country for his followers. And the light is this. The Lord God will empower you to be publicly clear about who causes what. He'll empower you. You don't have to, oh man, I'm just not good of speech. Paul said that too, by the way. I just can't find the words. If the time comes when he wants you to be, you will find it kind of rising up with you. You'll remember that verse, you'll whatever, or if you're in conversation with somebody, you'll kind of think of a thought, just how, you, how somebody said it in your Bible study or something, and, and he'll give you the way to be clear about who he really is and the reality of him at just the right moment. And you just kind of let it out there and let God take it from there. That's, that's the wondrous good news of all this. But the reality is, is we, we've also got to sort of be clear about the lessons of this story for Christians and about the dangers of idolatry and how subtle it is and how when you live in a culture, in a world that is con conditioned and, and uh, dedicated to idolatry, like we are becoming more and more dedicated to our politics in this country, for example. That's an idol. And, and it's easy for us to kind of breathe this in and, and if we're not careful. I'm not saying that it's even bad things that we make idols, but anything we put on the sort of the pedestal of our heart, the, the main thing that we think about all the time, that can be an idol. You know, there's a, a book written in 2009 by Timothy Keller that is now a classic, and I would say a prophetic classic, actually. It's called Counterfeit Gods, about the idols that we have. I'm going to read you a quote from there. He says, personal idols, such as romantic love, financial prosperity, or political success, these counterfeit gods are not so hard to spot. But there are others, however, that influences us, influence us that are more hidden. They are not idols of our heart, but of our culture and our society. And when you live in that culture and society... It's important to call those out and be careful about those things. I mean, what kind of society or culture do we have right now? We have ideological uh, idols all over the place. One that I, we could call out right now is, is uh, you know, sort of the, the hypocrisy in uh, what's going on in terms of communication now. And in terms of, for just take one section of that, take big tech and how the cancel culture has entered big tech. And so they're canceling certain voices, some of which, granted, I would agree, are things I don't want to hear and I don't want to read. But, but the reality, they're canceling certain people 
but they're not canceling other people because they're saying, this is dangerous, this is wrong, but then why aren't you canceling the child porn people on Twitter, Facebook? Then why aren't you canceling uh, the leader of Iran that says we are going to destroy Israel and throw it into the earth, they're, they're, they're satanic, calling God, you know, why are you doing those kind of things? Why, why does every dictator in the world seem to have it? You know, so there's a hypocrisy there. But on the other hand, if, I saw some good news today, so, uh, this week, and I, I don't know if this person's a Christian, I have no idea. But they did something that I think that we Christians should think about. This, this person's a reporter for Politico, which is a left-leaning, um, I, I think, I don't read it much because I, I, don't, I don't subscribe, but, but it's a left-leaning uh, Washington, D.C. political magazine or online magazine. Okay? And she was a reporter for them, and she went out to Wyoming to a conservative, Republican uh, kind of uh, rally out there to check it. But then she kind of went out into the town and into the area where she was, and she started just trying to talk to normal people. And she came back and she said this on national TV this week. She said, you know what I realized? That... Not everybody, in fact, most of the country doesn't think like we think in the power corridor between New York City and Washington, D.C. And we say, well, duh. Yeah, but she had the guts to say it on national TV. And she said, you know what? I, again, I have no idea what her political views are, but my guess is that they're not like mine. She says, you know what? I'm really glad I went there because I talked to no normal people. They're clearly normal people, but they don't even think anywhere close to the way that you and I think here in the bubble. Isn't that interesting? What, wouldn't, wouldn't that be cool if God kind of rode into that little break in our armor? How about that for some unity if he could do that? Pray it be so. You see, I think that's what, 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 what Keller is trying to get us to see. And, 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 and essentially, in his own way, in his own time, in a much more violent world, Elijah is trying to get that to happen uh, for his people in Israel too. Look at beginning at verse 20. This is a little bit of, a, these next two are going to be long uh, references, but hang with it. So Ahab sent orders among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long are you going to struggle between two choices? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Follow him. Okay, there's, that's the big idea of this story as well as Elijah's whole life as well as I, what I think we need to think about in our world today most. If, if you think, you know, who, if you think one, what, what you're following and what you're hoping in is going to bring you happiness, fine. But, you know, you, you need to choose what's really real here. And it's the same thing that Ahab does with this cause business. He refuses to, to, to imply that somebody, there is someone in i.e. God, Yahweh, who has the right, the sovereign right, to choose and to cause things. But we have sort of this, this choice kind of uh, thing that we're, we're, we're all about. We have this kind of choice that choice is supreme over everything and anything else. I get to choose. I get to choose who I take my walking orders from. And most of the time when you, when you have that kind of attitude in a culture, it turns inward more and more and more so that the self gets to choose. And that's what Elijah is trying to go after in a sense. You know, you got, how long are you going to just piddle around here? But the people did not answer him so much as a word. I bet they didn't. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord. Lord, all caps, means Yahweh. 
That's what the word is, God's most holy name. So the people of these translations, English translations, are being respectful of that name. Of the Lord, while, while Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, have them give us two oxen and have them choose one ox for, for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare an ox and lay it on uh, the wood, and I will put no fire under it. And then you call on the name of your God, small g, and I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people replied, that is a good idea. Verse 25, so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose the one ox for yourselves and prepare it first since there are many of you and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under the ox. Then they took the ox which was given to them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped about, which that was sort of the, uh, the, the religious dance that was all the rage, kind of a limping around. They limped about the altar which they had made and at noon, Elijah ridiculed them and said, Call out with a loud voice, since he is God, undoubtedly he is attending to business. This is an example of me not growing, outgrowing potty humor, but what that means is he was doing his business. He was in the bathroom. Okay, so, man, he must be locked in the bathroom. Or is on the on the way or is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and will awaken. And so they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom as swords and lances and until the blood gushed out of them. It was disgusting. And then midday was passed and they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no, vo no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. See, Here's, here's the main point, that, that verse 21, where, where you, know, you know, Canaanite people, Baal worshipers, you may have all the apologetics all lined up about why this needs to happen and why, you, why you're, why you're, why you're of, of the religion of Baal. But what, what Elijah does is he calls him on, he says, if Yahweh is God, follow him. It means to go after, like run after, that's what the word means, run after that God. If he's the real God, then you ought to run after him. But if Baal is God, go ahead and run after him. But I don't see you doing that. It's, it reminds me a lot of what um, someone said in, I think it was when I was a sophomore in high school, in our youth group, uh, that was a part of me, uh, you know, coming, becoming fully uh, uh, committed, fully converted, let's put it that way, to Christ. It was either my youth pastor or it was Randy Alcorn or Larry Gadball. One of those guys were up there uh, talking, uh, and, and I think they all said it at one point. They said, you know, guys, you, you, the, the thing back in the day, back in that day, was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, okay? That was, those were the main idols in that day. He said, he said guys, you know, if, if you really think that that's like the glitzy, that's, that's the thing that's going to bring the hope to your life, that's the thing that's going to save you, then you really you ought to run after it. But I don't think you believe that. Because I don't see any of you doing that. So you really ought to consider that maybe there's another God. And it was like, whoa, that, that's some serious stuff there. You see, that's kind of where Elijah is going on what Elijah is up to. He's talking about the real God. 
We, we have the same sort of addiction to choice that we talked about earlier. I get to choose. I get to choose my identity, for example. I get to choose this, and I get to choose that. It doesn't matter what the Creator has done, how the Creator has made me, or what the Creator has, has created me, uh, uh, you know, who, who my forefathers are by the, by the word of my Creator, or, or, or even my gender, or any of that stuff. You know, I get to choose. And you know what? Our, that, that, that worship of choice is starting to drive us mad in many ways. And, and that's what, what, what Elijah's going after here. It's not that different, this sort of self-worship. It's the purest form of idolatry. It's trying to hedge your bets with God and therefore undeify or knock God down, the real God down a few notches, if you will, so we can control him. There was an interesting verse I ran into this week from the book of 2 Kings. I've been telling you, I've been in my devotions reading through 1 and 2 Kings and just finished those up. But in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 41, it says this, So while the nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. Their children, likewise, and their, their grandchildren, just as their fathers did, and they do to this day. So that, that's, what that is, is, is Judah and Israel, the, the people of Israel, God's people, they, they, sure, they still served Yahweh God, but they kind of brought in the other gods just to kind of just hedge their bets a little bit. Mixed and matched. So what that's saying is, is that's idolatry too. Mixing and matching, if you will. So how do, you, how do you address this? How do you be a God follower? How do you speak up in a world, in a country, that hedges its bets like that? How do you how do, you do, do that in, in the midst of unbelief that, that puts itself forward as belief? Belief's a very popular word right now. It winds up in shopping bags. Yeah, I mean, but we're a country that is still hedging our bets. So, yeah, yeah, we sort of believe in God, but, you know, what about this? Well, we could do what Elijah does. Elijah plays the fool. Elijah stands up and says, ah, let me just, uh, let me just ask you, hey, where's your God? There's a great book that came out a few years ago, 2015, I think, by Oz Guinness, about how can Christians in a dark age like ours be persuaders for Christ? And it's called fool's talk. And he talks about two kinds of fools. Watch this. He says, the first type of fool in the Bible is the character that might be called the fool proper. Heroism, villainy, and folly are all relative, but, is, but there is one fool in the Bible whose folly is seen as absolutely foolish and who is pronounced a real fool. The person who is truly, objectively, actually a fool because God says so. And who is that? That's the practical atheist who has no fear of the Lord and, is round, and roundly refuses to acknowledge God. It says that a couple of times in Psalms, for example. The fool is the person who says there is no God. Second type of fool in the Bible is quite different and takes us significantly closer to the secret of persuasion. This is the fool bearer, the person who is not actually a fool at all, but who is prepared to be seen and treated as a fool the fool for Christ. So that's what, what, what Elijah's doing. He's standing up here and he's willing to be treated as a fool for Christ. You know why? He's willing to, be, willing to be treated as a fool for Yahweh in this case. You know why? Because he knows reality wins. That's the principle. Or as Albert Muller says, ontology always wins. The reality, the fact of being always wins. You got two different gods. The one who actually is 
wins. The I am wins. And that's why he's not afraid to be called the fool by the people around him. Because here's what he knows and here's what we got to remember as, as God followers, even in, a, in an age that's challenging on us on this. And we might look, you know, they might call us fools. That's actually a badge of honor, by the way. But here's the reality. we got to remember that the reality wins and that our God is not somebody you can simply stick in a, in a religious box and say, just stay over here, okay? Just stay here for now. I'm going to go over and worship these other gods for a minute. Can't do it. We have a, we have a, a, a wild God. He keeps invading, invading our lives. He refuses to be shoved in the box. He keeps oozing out all over the place. He keeps coming and showing up. That's the kind of God we have. And the reason that happens is because reality, just you can't stick reality in a box. It keeps popping out. You can't stick reality in this and say, I choose a different reality, I choose a different morality, and somehow, boop, it just doesn't work. That's the nature of, of, of idolatry, if you will. But here's, here's the point about idols that Elijah wants, wants to make and what God wants us to make in this scripture, the not-so-superpower of any idol is that it makes a fool of whoever trusts it. That's the reality. No matter what it is that we, we have as our, as our idol of choice. And, you know, and the insistence that we still have of I get to choose, again, winds up making a fools of us all. If, we, if the choice and if you know, choice of, of, I get to choose all these realities of, med, of, of uh, morality and who is my God and who am I going to trust and what am I going to trust for hope? And this will fix it surely and that will fix it surely and kind of bounce between one thing and another kind of like they did in the book of Kings. If that's what, we, what we're doing, it's going to wind up making us the fool is the point. And while we're on this, we ought not to leave these idols before I say this. When I was studying this, I have to tell you, I was a little shaken too because I started thinking about my idols and how many good things can become idols. And what I mean by that is how many good things, family, church, all of you, I can kind of set up there at first thing in my heart and, you know, I can worry about those more than talking to God, for example. And how that's, that's the same kind of path, if you will, and, and, and I came across another passage in that same book by Keller uh, in Counterfeit Gods a little later that is very helpful in this. He says, you need to understand that you need to root out the idol, that's for sure. You need to put Christ on the throne of your life. But here's the thing. If you, if you just root out the idol and don't put Christ, on the, Christ and his love for you and for this world on the throne of your life, in your heart, if, that's, if the, he's not replacing that idol with his love, then the idol's going to grow back. So it's not just, oh, yeah, I'm going to reject it. It's, I'm all in with you, Jesus, and putting him back in the front. And every time I feel tempted to, to look away and to, to kind of fall away, to, to go back to that. Why? Because reality, the reality always wins. And that's what we see in the next section of this scripture, beginning at verse 30. It says this. It's a little long, but it's so dramatic. I don't think you're going to get bored. Watch this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come forward to me. And so all the people came forward, and he repaired, the word in Hebrew for repaired, the altar, is uh, healed. He healed the altar, because apparently Jezebel had been running around tearing down altars, including this one, which used to be the Yahweh altar on the top of Mount Carmel, but she tore it down so she could put a Baal altar there and kind of make it Baal Disneyland. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later. 
but repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And then Elijah took 12 stones corresponding to the number of the tribes of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So Israel still exists. There's still a people here. And the stones he, he built, uh, on the stones he built an altar uh, in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And he came, he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. And then he laid out the wood and cut the ox in pieces and placed it on the wood. And he said, fill four large jars of water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. So they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he, they also filled up the trench with water. These people were not rubes, by the way. They knew that fire did not burn water. At least it wasn't supposed to. Then at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, just to make clear who you are, today let it be known that you are God in Israel that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water and was, that was in the trench. And then all the people saw this. They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I bet they did. And wouldn't that be something? You see, what the sobering truth here is that when you're living in Baal country, there's still temptations to sort of have evangelical bales, if you will. And the temptation is, what is the point of Baal worship? Or what is the point of worshiping any false idol? Anything that we put our hope in other than God. What, what's the, the, the point of that? The point of Baal worship was, if we just treat Baal right, he'll treat us right. If we just do the right kind of dance and the right kind of thing and the right kind of worship and call in the right kind of way, then Baal will deliver. But what God is saying, what, what the Yahweh God is, what makes him different is he's not about delivering petty things to us or even things that are serious for us, but difficult things. That's not his main point, the sign. His main point is delivering us from sin of this world and making us new. And so when we put our hope in, you know, that, that thought creeps in, and it does for me too. I don't know about you. I don't think I'm alone. But the thought creeps in as, well, something bad happened. I must not have done this right. I must, you know, God must be, God, are you after me? Or when something really bad happens, boy, the temptation is screaming. That's when I need you to come alongside of me and say, no, 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 God's not that way. This is not a vindictive God we follow. This is not a petty God we follow. He's going to bring you through. But, but that's, that's the kind of idol that we've got to watch out for. And one of the ways we can do that is to, to remember this key truth that is in this text. It is that in idolatrous times, thrive on the life-giving truth that only one God reveals. Why? Because reality always wins. The real, real God always wins. He always shows up. Thrive into leaning into that. Even if you can't fully see it, you've known it. You've seen it. 
It's, it's a lot like what I heard years ago. And you've heard it over and over again from preachers. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has caught you in the light. When you're living in a dark world in a dark time, don't doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. The first time I heard that, you know who it was from? It was from a woman named uh, Corrie Ten Boom. And she was speaking at an Easter sunrise service, uh, a public Easter sunrise service when they were able to do that, uh, down at the Memorial Coliseum. She was the writer of The Hiding Place. She was also someone who had been... Uh, a Christian uh, put in the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, her and her family and her, her sister, I think her sister's named Betsy, but she made that statement, don't, don't down the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And then she said, uh, she rem- told us about when her sister was dying in the concentration camp and Corey came to her bunk and she knew this was the end. She said, what, what am I going to do without you? What am I supposed to do? And, and her sister says, tell them, tell all the people that you've been to the darkest place, that you've been to the pit of darkness. And because you've been to the pit of darkness, tell them that you can tell them that the love of God is still deeper still. That it never goes away. See, those are the kinds of things you and I need to remind ourselves of in these days. And we won't feel so weird about being fools for Jesus. You know, because what we've seen God in our families. We've seen God in our lives. We've seen God in one another in our church. We've seen God in the scripture and how it plays out. We've seen what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. And that changes everything. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. And here's the result, at least in Elijah's time and in this moment. Look at verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and do to them, uh, do not let one of them escape. So they, uh, with all that bloodletting, I imagine they can't escape anyway. So they seized them, and, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Which, you know, that's, I know that's disgusting in our world. And again, Jesus isn't saying we ought to do this uh, with people today. Please understand. He brought the, the, in the fact of grace and God's love being transformational. He fulfilled the Old Testament. But the Old Testament law was trying to moderate. Old Testament law was trying to moderate the violence that was already there and this kind of, you know, kill off the old regime kind of stuff. And so when it came to spiritual life, there was a commandment in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet says something that leads people astray, if a prophet prophesies something that doesn't come true, that prophet is to be put to death because they're not a prophet of Yahweh God. Because if, if they were, it would come true. It would happen. It would not lead people astray. And so he's just fulfilling the commandment of the Old, of the old Testament law. Not fun, but that's the reality. But here, verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink. So he's kind of given some grace to Ahab, even bad old Ahab who wanted to kill him. For there is a sound, the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up and he drank. But what did Elijah do? But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bent down to the earth. He went and prayed. He's back in that position that we're going to see him in again and again and again. And he prayed, okay, God, what now? You see, once again, God kept a light shining in the darkness. There was a nightlight on in that culture. And if you followed it, it was God himself. There's a nightlight in our culture. No matter how bad things get, According to Scripture, especially Scriptures like this, it doesn't mean that God isn't deeper still, that his presence has gone anywhere. Peter says, don't, don't count the darkness as God's absence. He hadn't gone anywhere. You just can't see him 
yet. Just get ready to see him. So with that, I think we should end this by keeping it really simple, okay? Because remember, this isn't supposed to be rocket science. This is supposed to be about, it's not about academics. It's about how, how to live in day-to-day, going forward in our world, in this culture, in this society right now. How do you live into that as God's person and follow him rather than the idols that are swirling around us and the idolatrous thoughts that keep trying to want and come in our hearts and minds? How do you do that? Well, we don't need to be afraid of those. What we simply need to do is, again, Moving forward on the three things that we've learned from this story, this event in history, is to be God-empowered by the real cause of reality. Let let that empower your day-to-day. God, I believe you are real. And all this other stuff that I tend to be afraid of, it's just not going to last. So in that sense, it's not real, but you're going to last. Be a fool bearer rather than a, a fool proper. And in the process, check your own idols. Ask God to help you root those out. And then you can thrive by seeing that your God will show what's real. Why? Because reality always wins. Let's thank God for that right now and pray to him together. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you do always win. That in the end, reality wins. And so, Lord, I just pray that the reality of that will impress itself upon us and also impress upon us the, the reality of your love for us, the reality of Christ's love that replaces all these other genuine human needs and wants that somehow you would bring renewal and revival, that you will. And that let that love be in our hearts, that your love be in our hearts, not only so we can share it with one another, that too, but so that we can rely on that and know that one day you will come. In the end, in the time, of course, once and for all, but also that you will just simply come in our time, in some way, in our lives, in this moment, in our locale, in our context. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, will you show your love in a way, in such a powerful way that it kind of lifts us above the chaos and the worry and the outrage and the swirl, just like you did, Elijah. Thank you, God, for being that kind of loving, gracious God who goes and says, hey, go have something to eat and something to drink while I fix this thing. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for being here. We thank you for being in our city, in our families, in our church, in our country right now. And that you are really real. It's in your name we pray. Amen.